Good morning. I'm Kirsty, and this morning I'm reading John 15, 12 through 17. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no, no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, God. You may be seated. Well, Kendrick, you can go ahead and come up, my man. Uh, well, I'm so excited to introduce to you guys uh, a friend of, of Ryan and I's. Um, one of the cool things that we uh, in, in, in getting to be a part and network with other churches that we get to come alongside and, and, and meet new people. And so um, Kendrick um, has been helping Ryan. So Kendrick and Ryan got connected through uh, one of the pastors at the well, which was Ryan's sending church. And um, one of the th- shortly after his Acts 29 assessment, um, Ryan got connected with Kendrick. And, and Kendrick's been uh, not only, uh, I would say, helping Ryan with preaching, but I would say also pastoring. Um, it should be no shock to you. Maybe it is. Uh, as pastors, we also need pastors. Uh, we need people in our lives who are encouraging us and can come alongside us and that we um, just can be ministered to. And, and I know Kendrick has been that for Ryan and honestly, you know, indirectly been that to me because I've gotten to benefit from y'all's conversations just in getting to talk with Ryan. Uh, but anyways, so they've been, they've, they've just are, are coming down. Uh, they came down to San Angelo this weekend uh, to hang out and to, to bring the word, and, and um, we're so glad that you guys have. And so if you guys, church, church could, give Kendrick a warm Redeemer welcome. Thank you. That was warm, <laughs> and it has been cold. I'm glad to be here. Um, as you just heard, I've, I've been getting to know Ryan, I'm, like most of you, trying to say the right name, not Ryan or Brian. I apologize, my name does not rhyme. But my name is Kendrick, so I fit in with the wives, Kirsty and Kendall, right? Alliterations are good, too. Um, I, I love your pastor, Ryan. I love him. I no hesitation. I'm getting to know him through Zoom. We hugged for the first time last night. It was affirmation of my love for him. I hope you know that you have at least one. I don't, I don't know you as well. I'm sure you're good, too. You have a, at least one pastor. I'm sure they're both the same. You have pastors who care for you. They want to shepherd your souls well. They want to, they want to hone in on a craft. You're like we, We've been connected through preaching. He wants to preach better. But what I noticed right away is his deep love for you. And you don't find that all the time. There's a lot of, a lot of preachers who can preach, and they don't love their people. And so you have shepherds. They want to shepherd your souls and I just want to affirm that just from the outside, it was immediately noticed how deeply they care for you. And that blesses me. So every time I meet with him, I'm blessed and encouraged by how, how much he wants to do this well. And so he mentioned it's been more pastoring than preaching coaching uh, because that's what, it, that's what is needed. We need pastors. And so I just want to celebrate that and honor him for that. And I, I hope you take care of him as another baby is is about to be here, or maybe even already here. It's so exciting. So know that you're all humans in this. We're all doing this thing together. Uh, and nobody up on a stage is any different than anybody else. And 
There's that humility baked into the family, the community. I'm talking way too much. I got to get into the sermon. I have a time limit, I think. But I, I really am grateful to be here. I, I say all that so you'll know. When I say I'm honored to be here in front of you, it's not just something a guest preacher says, but it really is an honor to share in what God is doing here in San Angelo and in Redeemer Church. All right, so speaking of that, God is certainly doing something. He's working in the world. He's, he's always been about something in his creation and in all things. He is doing something, and he's inviting us into it. So I, I want you to sense that. I, I'm going to give some information. I'm going to say some things. We're going to w- walk through Scripture. But if we don't sense this cosmic reality that God is doing something, we'll kind of miss out on what, what exactly it is we're supposed to be doing or even who we ought to be. And the way that we're, we most clearly see that is that God has graciously provided. He's shown his faithfulness in the fact that he has stepped in in the most personal way. He is making himself known to us through a person, Jesus Christ, through the person work of Jesus. We know who God is and we can see what he's about and we're invited to share in that. It's a real thing. We're so tempted to go through the motions and do the Christian things and talk the Christian language, but this is a real thing. We need to feel it in our bodies. We're invited into something. You, as an individual, have a gift and have a purpose to join the body of Christ in the mission of God. And this is incredible. we got to feel it. And Jesus makes a way for us to feel it, to know who we are. He sits down at a table with his disciples, and he's helping them sense who they are as they share in communion. And ever since, the, the people of God, the body of Christ, have been sharing in this communion with Jesus, realizing this beautiful reality, we belong to him. So the question, I think the question worthy of unlimited consideration is who is Jesus? Who is he? Do we really know him, the real Jesus? Do you know him? Not do you have some collective knowledge of him? Maybe you think it's sufficient to have some sort of objective theological concept of who Jesus is, but do you actually know him? Have you trusted yourself to him? Does he know you, the whole you, the real you, not the polished up version that you want people to see, not the future you you hope to be, but have you actually surrendered yourself, trusted yourself to Jesus? Is there a knowledge? Is there a shared relationship there? And, and that, if, if you can't answer that question straightforward, if you can't be open and honest and with yourself right now in your head, there's not a whole lot of hope beyond it, no matter what you're offering, no matter what you're doing, no matter what you, you can manage to grind out. If you and your person, is not, if you're not known by Jesus and if you don't know him, the God, the teacher, the healer, the human, Jesus, if it hasn't changed everything about you, if your life isn't on a new trajectory, like all of your being and your doing transformed, a real supernatural thing occurring in you, this ongoing work of sanctification, it's real. I need you to feel it's real. If it hasn't happened, something's off. What's the problem? Right? 
if, if, not, if you can't be like Paul and say, the only thing that could possibly be better is death so I can be with him. If that's not the disposition of your heart, something is off. Do we feel that? Now, the temptation right now is to just be shamed by it. You're right, Kendrick. Let me go try harder this week. I'll come back next week and I'll show you. I'm, I'm, that's not what I'm wanting you to do. Please do not do that thing. The shame motivation is not going to get us where we need to go. There's something deeper that needs to happen. And that's where I'm hoping the word of God can lead us this morning. So when you hear the question, what's the problem? If the first thing you feel is I got to try harder, there's still something off. That's where, that's where I need you to feel. That's where we all need to be right now because the temptation's in me too. And then we consider this beautiful passage we just heard. So several years ago, I heard this, this saying, it's this, this idea, this philosophy. It's not groundbreaking, but it really shifted in me how I view everything that I just said. It's a simple mission idea for the church. Welcome guests, make friends, and pray that God would make them family. Welcome guests, make friends, pray that God would make them family. It's simple. It's beautiful. I think we can do that. So I started, I started inviting people into this idea. Why don't we just welcome guests, befriend them, and then since we can't save anybody, let's pray that God would actually make them family. The problem is that the challenge we, we discovered is in the middle. Like, God's faithful. He can do the saving. We can actually do welcoming pretty good, like good coffee, good food, good environment, comfortable seating, ambient lighting. Like we're pretty good at the, the welcoming. Everybody feels comfortable. But this making friends part, it hurts. It's hard. It's scary to make friends. And it was surprising to discover we're bad at making friends. We've been doing this our whole life. On the playgrounds in elementary, middle schools, you trash that. Nobody talks about middle school. Friends don't exist in middle school. High school, you bond around like what you're doing, athletics or academics or student government. You're like, you, friends are easy. And then you get into college and everybody's like free. Do whatever you want, party, whatever. Everybody's friends. Let's hang out. You get your little clicks. But when you become an adult, like a real adult, like job, kids, I don't have time, why did I think I didn't have time in college? I really don't have time now. Friends are hard. And if you're, if you have, uh, if you're in a marriage, then it's even harder because you both got to like the other couple and that never works out. <laughs> Friends are so challenging. We get stuck there again and again. So we settle. We settle for just gathering some people around, sitting in a circle, educating them about Christian doctrine and moral behavior. And we think that's what the church ought to be doing. It's not what Jesus did. It's not what he called us to do. And I know this, this isn't just me. It's not just our churches. It's all churches in America. This is what we think we're supposed to be about. What if it really is as simple as welcoming guests, making friends, and then praying that God would make them family? What if we, it really can be that simple? Doesn't it feel a little bit freeing from all the things we try to make it? And if you don't have friends, don't feel bad. Like, it's very common. I read some statistics I thought about getting into 
There's studies, all kinds of things. Everybody is perplexed by this reality that adults are bad at making friends. And even if you think you have a really good friend, it's not always reciprocal. Like, you know, that guy that's like, yeah, he's my best friend. And you're like, well, you're not my best friend. I love you. Like, like that's sad. Like, it's just, we're laughing, but it's kind of like, I'm laughing so I don't cry because the reality is we feel very lonely. Can we be honest about that? It's lonely being an adult. And especially if you're not getting along with your spouse, then who's your friend? Who's really there for you? Who actually cares? It's sad. We need to feel all the feelings. Here's a thought. Maybe we're no good at making disciples and living as family because we don't know how to make friends. There's good news. Jesus, in his last night with his disciples, knew this would be crucial. And so he spoke to them about who we ought to be and what we ought to be doing. And he centered all of it around this concept of friendship. And we so often miss it. We just heard it read to us. We're going to walk through that passage in just a minute. But in John 15, he makes it plain. The narrative makes it plain. Jesus put on flesh, the God of all creation, became a man to serve and to befriend humanity and then to ultimately save them. Jesus was all about welcoming guests, making friends, and then he himself made a way that they could become his family. He called them brothers and sisters, but, but I think for our sake, we need to hone in on the reality that he called us Friend. A little theology and some background before we get into the passage, because I think it's important. As we, as we read the gospel narratives, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we see developed in the story, baked into it, this reality of who Jesus is. Remember, that's the question I threw out. Who is Jesus? We need to also consider what a friend is, but for a second, who is Jesus? And we see a high Christology and a low Christology. I know there's some theological nerds in here, because Ryan's talked about you. So if you're not, then just hang with me. High Christology and low Christology are important ways of viewing who Jesus is in Scripture. So a high Christology is seeing Jesus from above. The reality that he is the incarnate, invisible God, present, Yahweh, the Lord of all creation, the eternal Son, through whom all things are created. This is Jesus from above. In him, all things are made and held together. He really is the king of all kings. The universe, the undiscovered parts of it, are all within his sovereign control. He is deserving more than anyone of all honor and reverence and praise. You should be in awe of Jesus. He can do all things. Nothing surprises him. Nothing throws him off. Nothing scares him. He's the Lord of all creation. He feels untouchable, holy, holy, holy. That's Jesus' high Christology from above. And then there's a low Christology from below, this baby, this human baby, born to some nobodies in the backwoods of some small town, lying in a manger. We just went through the Christmas season. He grew to be a carpenter. He had a job. This self-appointed rabbi left his home and called some misfits to follow him. This Jewish vagabond of sorts, right? Kind of a homeless guy just journeying and teaching people. 
but like any human can be, he was a really good teacher. And he loved to tell stories, and people listened to the stories. You see, he's very human. And they were amazed by him. So they followed him, and they wanted to see the show. He was also disrupting the oppressive social systems and the religious norms. He offered wisdom and compassion and patience, all very human things. That's low Christology. That's Jesus from below. Now, it's imperative that we hold both of these views when we see who Jesus is. It's hard to because they seem contradictory, but we hold both of these views. We, if we only cling to the first idea, then we'll miss out on the humanity of Jesus, and he'll feel so distant that we continue to feel alone. But if we only hold the second idea, then it's kind of sacrilegious. You might have even felt that as I was describing. Like it, it feels like he's not even God. He's just some really awesome dude. But there's more than that. There's somehow, in theology, we call it the hypostatic union of Christ. You don't have to know that term, but it's fun. There's this reality that the two, these two things come together in this beautiful, mysterious, impossible way that he is one. He's not God and man half and half. He's one in this beautiful union of the two, truly, fully God, truly, fully human, both imperative for what he is going to accomplish and what he continues to accomplish today. Jesus right now has a body and he's the eternal God of all creation. If you feel like this, your mind going crazy trying to figure it out, that's exactly right. You can't. But it's a, it's a reality that's, that leaves us in awe and makes him feel like us. Now, in general, the synoptic gospels, that's Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they view Jesus from below. They want you to see his humanity. They're emphasizing the genealogy, like he has a family on earth. His birth story is told. His ministry is all about him, like, reaching out, touching people who are untouchable, preaching and teaching. His parables are all in those synoptic gospels. Certainly, his power is on display. So I'm not saying that. Certainly, he does some miracles there, especially at the end. You know, he gets up out of the grave. That's all in there. But then John flips it. He wants his readers to know right away, Jesus is God. So from jump, John 1, 1, Jesus is God. He skips over the genealogy, skips over the birth story. He doesn't tell any of the parables. He wants you to see miracle after miracle, supernatural experience. Jesus is transcendent. He's God. That's John's gospel. But in John chapter 13, something shifts. Like he's been going Boom, 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 boom. The life and ministry of Jesus is all about his bigness. It's all about his power. It's all about his transcendence. And then it slows way down. And he becomes very human. And we get this clear scene of Jesus inviting his disciples, his friends, into the upper room. And they sit around, probably on the ground, not at a table like the Last Supper, the image. I don't know if you into art, but everybody's seen that. They're sitting on the ground, and Jesus takes off his outer coat. He wraps it around his waist, and he starts washing feet. God starts washing feet. And he starts telling them things 
this humble servant man who has been emphasized as God starts telling them things that are kind of scary, but also filled with hope. There's something really weighty going on. He's giving, he's giving them warnings. He's making his promises clear. He's some unfiltered truth. There's no mystery in this meeting. Jesus knows it's their last meal together. So he starts telling them, you know, I'm going to be killed soon. And they're like, don't wash my feet. Don't wash my feet, Peter. You know, he's always screwing it up. Don't wash my feet. Jesus is like, I have to wash your feet if you're going to belong to me. He's like, oh, then wash everything. Like, wash me. Like, no, just your feet, Peter, chill out. Like, I want you to feel, these are real people. This really happened. This is a real scene. Step into it with me. He's making sense of all the shared experiences. And then they observe in this Passover meal like no other. Looking ahead to his death, he breaks bread. He pours wine as symbols of his body being offered up and broken. A symbol of his blood being poured out to wash away sins. Something heavy. Feel it in the room. The whole time he's listening to them. He's hearing their hearts. He's looking at them. Jesus is looking at them. They're making physical contact. They're sharing in a moment. It's vulnerable. It's new. He's saying things like, I'm not going to read all of 13 through, but he says, he says things like, I'm going to be persecuted and put to death and you will be too, just for being with me. And one of you will betray me. Somebody in this room right now is going to betray me. Peter, you're going to deny me three times. But still, to all of you, I'm with you. Remain with me. He says, for I am the way. I am truth. I am life. Stay with me. Remain in me. Even after I'm gone, my spirit will come and dwell with you. And I will be with you in a new way. You will do new things. And remain together. He says, keep one another. Love one another. It's going to get rough out here. You will have trials and tribulations, but take heart. For I have overcome the world. This is John 13 through 16. This is the scene playing out. So let's zoom in. Now that you have a sense of what's going on, let's zoom in on chapter 15. And let's walk through this passage. I'm a big fan of long introductions. So John, this brilliant writer, inspired by the Spirit, shows us friendship. Let's listen for it and see who Jesus is as our friend as he speaks to his disciples. John chapter 15, starting in verse 12. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone would lay down his life for his friends. He's hinting at something. In John's epistles, he, he writes on commentary on those two verses, basically. He's emphasizing the importance of this love and this friendship. Verse 14, you are my friends if you do what I command you. So it's a conditional statement. We'll come back to it in just a minute. Verse 15, no longer do I call you servants, for a servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For, 
So he's about to tell us why he calls us friends. Here is something that demonstrates why I'm calling you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you. I saw you, I chose you, I wanted you to be mine, and I planted you. Remain in me that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. It's going to last. So that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. So he, he gives it to you not because you're good enough, not because you're trying really hard, not because you've proved you're worthy, but because of Jesus. Because Jesus calls you friend. Because he's transformed you and you're producing a fruit that will remain. You can go to the Father and ask whatever you want. He's going to give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. So he's chosen to call us friend. And in so doing, he gives us all we need to befriend one another. To love one another. He's commanded it of us because he knows we have all that we need to do it. Not not by your own will. You're not obtaining anything by your merit or your efforts. You're not grinding it out, trying to become who you think your friends want you to be. But you're trusting in Jesus, gaining all you need to befriend and love one another. I want you to notice John makes us a bit of a friendship sandwich here. right? So this, this chunk of scripture goes together on purpose. Verse 12 and 17 are our ends. They're like the bread to the sandwich. These commands, it's like almost the same verse, love one another. And then come down a little bit, 13 and 16 are like the condiments, the topping to the sandwich. Like they add flavor, a little texture, but they're not the meat. They're just really good. They add. We need 13 and 16 to make sense of what's going on here. And then the middle of it, 14 and 15, everything hinges on it. I told you it's centered around friendship. 14 and 15, he calls us friend. How? How do we know? Well, he lets us all the way in. He's letting us in on what God is doing. He's telling us the secrets of God. That's what friends do. They're vulnerable enough to let you know everything. And as evidence that we're in him, as evidence that we belong to him, as evidence that we're his friend, we walk in obedience of his commands. And what are Jesus' commands? To love God and to love One another, to love people, to even love your enemies. How is any of that possible? Well, it's it's all possible because of what Jesus is about to accomplish. He is consistently holding one thing above all things, that his followers would know love. To love for one another and love for God. Certainly love God above all with all that you are, but the fruit of that is that we love one another. So here's the second question. What is a friend? You tell me. What is a friend? Somebody please tell me. I'm serious. I want to hear you say it. What is a friend? Anything you want. Someone you trust. What else? Yes, someone who loves you despite your flaws. That's good. Anybody else? Faithful? Someone who's loyal. Yes. 
Anybody else? What is a friend? That's an important question because it's not clearly defined, even in the dictionaries you can search. It's certainly not defined by Facebook. I don't even know most of my friends. If Facebook is some weird guy in Africa wants to be my friend, okay. (laughs) Friendship is hard to define primarily because of all the ways we're, we're broken beyond what we can even fully understand. We think we know things that we don't actually know. We think we want things that we shouldn't actually want. We feel very needy and we think certain things are going to fulfill that need and satisfy that longing when they actually could never do that. So it makes friendship very complicated. And and it's also very vulnerable. Some of the things you mentioned, it's very vulnerable to be trusted and to to trust others. Because friends hurt you inevitably because they're broken too. How much are you willing to be harmed? All that has to be calculated. And we get into these spaces where we think maybe it's just better if I never put myself out there. I think we tend, to, we tend to define friends by how they show up for us. But sometimes that can even be twisted because we want to be flattered. We want to feel good about ourselves. So we look for friends who are going to make us feel good about ourselves. And we think that's what everybody wants. So we try to befriend people by making them feel good about themselves. And that, that always leads us to a little bit of lying, a little bit of hiding, a little bit of posturing ourselves to pre- pretend to be something we're not or to perform as if we're something we're not. And we think we're not supposed to feel so-called negative emotions. So if our friends are sad or mad, we try to cheer them up as fast as we can. We want to be good at stuff, so then we cheer people on. So, we, so just to give you some easy ways to grip this, like I think of friendship by, by typical definitions as those who cheer us up and those who cheer us on. Those who cheer us up and those who cheer us on. And both are very dangerous because we're all inclined to be very egocentric. And if we're all about being cheered up and being cheered on, we neglect deeper things. Like maybe we need to not be cheered up so fast. Maybe we need to feel some sadness and some anger. Beautiful that we were led through some lament this morning. It's certainly in God's design for humanity. But if we think friendship is all about that, then we're never going to feel those deeper things. And if, we're, if it's all about cheering people on, then this is even scarier to me because we perform in such a way, like even in preaching, I'm like, I got to do a good job this morning so they think I'm an awesome preacher. But the problem is if I do good, then I have to do good every single time because that expectation's there now. So now there's this pressure. If we perform for our friends and they're impressed with us, which is what we, we desire, especially in romantic relationships. We just want to be like, I want my wife to think I'm awesome. Can I be honest? I want her to think I'm the greatest guy on earth, that I never fail. I want her to celebrate everything I do. Any husbands, amen, and out there? I want to feel awesome because my wife thinks I'm awesome. That's probably the greatest temptation in my life. I just want her to think I'm amazing. The only problem is I have to keep that up. It reminds me of Aladdin, you know? You know what I'm talking about. Or maybe you know him by his other name, Prince Ali. Fabulous he. Ali Ababa. You know who I'm talking about. Or maybe if that movie's too old. Maybe it's like you're the strong one. 
and everyone sees you strong. And so you feel this pressure to always be strong. But it's a pressure that like is a dripping. And it's just so much drip, drip, drip. Feel the pressure. Or maybe you're perfect and you never screw up. And you're the sister who's got it all together and everybody thinks you're awesome. So they look to you as the flawless, untouchable one. And so you always have to be perfect. If you ever screw it up, then you lose your value. You, you lose your worth. Everything's thrown off. And we don't talk about Bruno. Some of y'all are with me. I was just seeing who was. If you don't know, you're missing out. You ask the people who laughed. There's, there's this stress to life if we live in this way. True friendship isn't that. Please hear me. True friendship isn't this performance. We might be attracted to people who think we're awesome, but it's not what we need. We need people to know us as we are, fully and truly. Maybe friendship shouldn't be so tragic. If Aladdin would have just been himself, Jasmine actually wanted to be with him. It's such a good movie. She wanted him for who he was. He didn't have to put on the show. The tragedy is, if we remain egocentric, if we think friendship's all about self-esteem, which is a very basic human thing, so please don't be ashamed of it, but if we think it's all about that, we're cultivating a greater alienation from the community we actually truly need. We're alienating ourselves even from our true selves. We don't even know who we are because we've been performing and pretending so much. We're lost and we're so ashamed of the broken parts of ourselves. We're so ashamed. We're so, we're so nervous always that people are going to see who I really am. That everything is riddled with anxiety. We lay in bed anxious they're going to figure it out. And then we show up to places like this and we pretend like it's not true. And we're so alone. We don't want to let people in because we're afraid they're not going to like who we are. And what if they don't? What if even after hearing this sermon, you're like, I'm going to take the risk, and then they don't want you for who you are? And then all those fears you had of being that person that nobody wants to be with are true. What if that's the reality? I want to encourage you, it's worth the risk, because the truth is that the ironic twist in this is that we can only know who we're supposed to be. We can only be who we truly are in authentic, honest fellowship with friends. And if you never have it, you're never free. And it starts with this beautiful truth. Jesus calls you friend. Right now, you are a friend of Jesus. Back to this the beginning idea, though, it's only a reality if you have trusted yourself to him who will never fail you. Your friends are going to fail. They're going to hurt you. They're going to be upset with you. You're going to annoy them sometimes. It's just true. Jesus always invites you back. You're never too much for him. And he is strong enough to carry everything you think you have to carry. 
and he sees through the facade. He knows you in all your brokenness, as vulnerable as you feel deep inside. He knows it and he loves you and he invites you to the table. He knows you'll betray him. He knows you'll deny him and he still washes your feet and he still breaks the bread for you. And he still offers you the blood poured out to wash you clean. In fact, he loves you so much. He's demonstrated it in the greatest way any friend could possibly demonstrate it. And he's given up his life that you could be righteous. He became sin and died on that cross. And just to show you he has power even over that, he got up out of the grave conquering sin and death so you could be free if only you would enter in and be known by him. The Bible shows us friendship is a deep, transformative, liberating, healing thing. And it starts with Jesus. It's something worth seeking and fighting for and even laying down your life for. It's a relationship that's deeper than brotherhood. It's feeling safe to be free just to be. You don't have to perform. You don't have to do anything. Friendship is about intimacy. And it's been that way since the beginning. It wasn't good that Adam was alone. So God gave him Eve. You feel alone right now? God's given you brothers and sisters. Adam and Eve were a a married couple for sure. They might have been a lot of things, but certainly they were friends. There was an intimacy there. This idea of intimacy, this into me you see if you need a cheesy way to remember it. It's it's being known and loved. That's friendship. This, this, This human longing we all have for intimacy was put there by God so that we would know we need one another. And then Jesus commanded us to love each other. Just to make it more clear, you should love each other. It's a command of God. And he seems to hinge it on the reality that we are friends with him. He says, you're my friend if you obey this command to love one another. Now, obedience is, it's both this pursuit of joy and it's a surrender, a sacrifice, it's a choice. But it can't be that Jesus is saying obedience gains us friendship because that's not the gospel. That's not Christianity. It can't be obedience makes you into this. Because the gospel flips all of that. It must be that our friendship with Jesus gives way to the obedience. It must be that the evidence of our friendship is how we obey. So think of it like this. This is fundamental Christianity. So I want to make this very clear. We're transformed by the gospel, not who we used to be, and we walk in obedience and gain access to intimacy with God. They go together. It's like the pedals of a bike. We have this affection for Jesus and it drives us because we're not who we used to be. We're something new. And this affection drives us to obey. The fruit of our life now in Christ is obedience. We're moving, but we need two pedals for a bike, right? So the other pedal is this allegiance to Jesus that even when my flesh is at war against me and I don't have the affections that I long to have, even in their absence, I have an allegiance to Jesus that drives me forward. And they go together. 
Now, the church is so divided in America, especially. We have these camps of people who are all about affection for Jesus. It's all about the affection. That's what leads us to obedience. And we have these people who are, it's all about the allegiance. You better obey. And it ends up shaming people into obedience. And they think that's good Christianity. But you can't really function on a bike if you're just using one pedal. So I want to call you to both. Have allegiance to Jesus when your affections fail you. But strive to to come to the reality that Jesus is before you. He sees you. He's holding you. He knows you. He has a a love that conquers all things. There is nothing he cannot accomplish. He's done it all, and he's bought you. He's brought you near to him. He's befriended you so that there would be a deep and meaningful intimacy, and that drives you more than anything. Your love for Jesus. I want to obey Jesus because I love him. It's what we want for our kids. I want them to obey me because they love me and they know my love for them. And they know I always want what's best for them. But I know that's not always going to work because they're broken, sinful human beings. So I'm going to call them to obedience. I'm going to command they obey because I know what's best for them. We have to have both in our faith. And Jesus knows this. So he's done the work to buy you back, to transform who you are, and he's given you the command, love one another, you need this. Does that make sense? Do you feel it in your body, not just hold it in your head? It's a holistic change of who we are. And just in case you think you don't have what you need, he also tells you, go to the Father in my name, and he's gonna give you everything you need. This relationship's covenantal, so it's certainly got conditions, but God always initiates and we respond this amazing thing happened God came after his people he put on flesh and he befriended us so I wonder this morning do you believe Jesus is your friend it starts there do you really believe it he likes you you need to hear it Jesus likes you he loves you we talk about that all the time he likes you right now he likes you I don't care what you did this morning I don't care if you like cuss your wife out on the way here. I mean, I do care. You shouldn't do that. But the reality doesn't change. Jesus knows you. He knew you would do that. And he likes you. He wants you in his family. And he's done everything necessary to make you his. Feel it. He's embracing you right now. Be changed by it. And in that new you, go make some friends. Welcome guests into your life, not just to events, not to worship gatherings. Welcome them into your life. And just like Jesus has befriended you, be their friend. Love them as they are. Like them. Search for the good things. Look, I know people are hard. I know friendship is hard. I know some people are like, there's only one good thing you can find, but find it. Value it. See, it tells you something of what God is like. Because they're human, just like Jesus is human. And celebrate it. And by the grace of God, they'll become family and they'll be more and more like Jesus, just like you are becoming more and more like Jesus. In just a moment, we're going to take communion. And this is a a regular opportunity. I'm glad your church observes because it gives you this opportunity to think of that table. I'm sitting around on the ground, not in chairs, at a table with the wine or the grape juice, whatever it is bread, body of Jesus and his blood. Think about it. And today I want you to think about this idea of 
friendship. Who is my friend? Ask yourself, who is my friend? And who have I befriended? And consider the challenges of friendship. And what I want you to do is think about you, not them. Because I think when we think we don't have friends, we easily blame it on them. Think about you. I know this is scary, especially if you feel like you're not worthy of friendship. It's scary to think about it's you. And what you're going to discover if you think about you is there's something wrong with you. Feel it. Don't run away from it. Don't try to deny it or hide it. Pretend it's not true. Feel it. I say that to free you up, not to shame you. Confess your neediness to Jesus. Discover what's broken and then surrender it to Jesus. That's how you're changed. Quit lying about it. Quit acting like you're not broken by sin. And just be before Jesus, vulnerable and real. That's how you're going to become his friend. He's already done it for you. Surrender yourself to him. There's this profound truth waiting to be heard and believed and embodied by the people of God. A freedom to be held by Jesus. And then to become Jesus, the body of Christ, together, is Jesus. You are representing him as you move through St. Angelo. Befriending the people of this city. Starting with the reality that Jesus calls you friend. The band's going to come up. You're going to have an opportunity to observe that communion. There's tables in the back if you don't know. Just go and take and, and go to God. Go before him. Process these things. As the music plays, go before him. Consider his love for you. Consider he shared himself with you. He gave you his secrets. He died so that you could be his friend. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you that we can be free from pretense, from agenda, from codependence as we surrender ourselves to you. I pray that for the people of God in this room, that we would become, become more and more aware of Jesus as our friend and we would be liberated from the ways that we feel we have to grind it out and, and pretend like we're not broken or, or Liberate it from the toxic shame and fear that keeps us from being honest. Lord, help your church here in San Angelo, help Redeemer Church to cultivate spaces of deep, vulnerable intimacy where friendship can be birthed and where the family of God puts on display the grace of God that the lost far from the Father would be drawn near. Lord, I pray for our long lost brothers and sisters in this city May they be welcomed into this body with great hospitality and they would be witness to the love and the deep intimate relationship that's present among your disciples and that you would do the supernatural work to draw them to you, to make them family and that the church on your mission filled with your spirit, friends of Jesus, would walk in obedience and love one another to your glory for your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen.